Welcome to uh, another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. Uh, I'm here with uh, Ingo and Ka. Welcome uh, as co-hosts. Um, my name is Misha, and we have a very special speaker today. It's a very salty conversation that we're going to have. Um, we're talking to Yuki Oka from uh, uh, from, Cal, uh, from Caltech. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. So. Um, Yukioka is the, uh, the, in the division of biology and biological engineering. Um, he is the graduate uh, student invited speaker, uh, here at Max Planck, Florida. Uh, and he studies, um, how the brain and the body cooperate to achieve, uh, appropriate internal balance. Uh, mm-hmm. and that can be, I guess, a, a very wide topic, yeah. but, uh, let's hope <laughs> to, uh, figure out exactly what that means. Um, so you study salt. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And if if we could kind of uh, get people uh, an idea of what that means. So salt and drinking behavior. So uh, if I could just like pose a question. So does does Gatorade make you less thirsty than water? Yeah. Um, depending. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Depending on the where, you know, when you're thirsty or not. Um, yeah. So Gatorade, it's a combination of water and then ions. Right. Then that's exactly what my uh, really study is focused on: uh, how the balance of water and sodium, or particularly in like you know ions, uh, especially sodium, uh, controls our appetite and uh, the body fluid balance. Right. So our body has this blood, uh, which is almost 140 to 150 millimolar sodium chloride, and that's a major uh, cation. And then the balance, uh, of course, that's balance counterbalanced with water. And if you l- get less water in the blood, then you get more sodium, right? And then you get less sodium in the blood, and you get, you know, I mean, uh, the depleted sodium level. Uh, and so this balance is such an important, uh, you know, homeostasis because it when once it deviates, like by five millimolar, then you already get uh, thirsty or you feel like uh, sodium appetite, right? So uh, like, and then also it's important to uh, maintain physiological function. You uh, uh, much, too much sodium, too like too less sodium, which is also counterbalanced by water, really make you sick, right? Uh, like high concentration of sodium, like you completely go unconscious and then you could die. Um, so this balance is so especially important for, you know, of course, mammal, mammalian species, but also like for other species like insects, right? From, um, you know, birds and everyone. Uh, so that's how, what we uh, study and then how that balance is achieved. Right. And then, of course, the, the only source is from external, right? When we drink water, we get water, and the sodium is from outside. We cannot just get water by through skin, right? So uh, how, uh, you know, our appetite toward those specific uh, substances are controlled is sort of a fundamental question for uh, as a biology and uh, neuroscience, too. So that's what we study. Can you talk a little bit about some of the circuits and mechanisms that are involved and important in maintaining the balance, especially between water intake and sodium intake? Okay, so these are, uh, you know, has been have been studied for like 
many decades. And roughly speaking, um, the thirst or water intake is controlled by uh, the lamina terminalis, one of the, uh, the forebrain structure, uh, and then um, the sodium is controlled by more like a brainstem related circuit. And uh, uh, in the recent years, we and other groups, of course, found a specific popula- population of neurons that controls, uh, you know, many aspects of drinking behavior or thirst versus uh, sodium appetite. And it turned out to be very different population uh, controls the distinct appetite. And, uh, you know, one of the um, example is that the excitatory neurons in the lamina terminalis, if you stimulate those neurons artificially uh, using optogenetics, uh, which is a technique to stimulate neurons uh, by light, right, that express specific channel, then if you like stimulate those neurons, then animal immediately feel thirst, even if if they don't uh, need any water, right? Uh, so from those experiments, we know that these neurons at least regulate the feeling of thirst, right? So that kind of experiment was done for many different neuron types. And uh, uh, so those are the ones that I talked about this for thirst, but you know, we did also for different population that controls sodium appetite. And if we stimulate one population in the brainstem related circuit, then animals just run to the rock salt, then start eating from that, right? So those kind of behavior and activity relationship just told us what populations involved. So this is a, a really interesting piece of data uh, that you show, right? There's there's a specific uh, group of neurons mm-hmm. that you can stimulate um, in the lamina terminalis, is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Uh, that when stimulated, you know, an animal would never normally eat rock salt. Rock mm-hmm. salt is disgusting. It's incredibly salty. Yeah. Um, and the animal just rushes over and, and starts licking it. Yeah. And then you stop sp- stimulating those neurons. Yeah. And I assume the animal is horrified at what it did. Yeah, exactly. It's incredibly embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, do, are the animals like, do they have some reaction after uh, you turn off the neurons? Are they incredibly thirsty? Do they just, or do they just go about their day like nothing happened? They don't realize yeah, that they were just mind think, controlled for a second. Uh, probably, I think they regret what they did. <laughs> um, so, for example, if you stimulate like certain neurons, right? So they just keep drinking, like like almost unlimited amount, right? So then the stomach is completely almost full, right? So after like stimulation termination right? they just lay down and then just take a break because they don't move anymore uh, because so you know stomach is full then if you stimulate again they just turn up and then like start drinking again right so that um, that, that means they feel probably uncomfortable right after stimulation uh, but, but uh, like our experiment probably shows that we can override that kind of discomfort and then still drive that behavior that's um, uh, so talking about optogenetics uh-huh. or has any experiment did like inhibitory options in those neurons to suppress the activity of those neurons uh, it Check. is uh, y- yes we have done and then other groups also have done those kind of experiments uh-huh. um, yeah so uh, like some of the populations if you inhibit uh for example, that the, the integrative um, nucleus is called the median preoptic neuron, which is a downstream sensory neurons. And if you silence uh, those excitatory neurons in water dehydrated animals, right, thirsty animals, mm-hmm. now you can suppress drinking behavior, mm-hmm. right. 
So that activity is now required for animals to feel thirst. In your research, they, so maybe exp explain to us how you first actually identified this neuronal population that is uh, selectively involved in controlling, controlling uh, sodium intake and water intake. So how did you, how did you find those nuclei and uh -huh. then started investigating them? Okay, so let's start with thirst uh, neurons. Uh, so the first population we found was excitatory neurons in the subfornical organ. Again, that's uh, um, the nucleus that's lacking the blood-brain barrier. Uh, so therefore, it's, uh, it functions as a sensor of the internal state. And <clears throat> in there, uh, of course, the, I'm not the only first person to identify that nucleus. Uh, that nucleus is already, already known as a center of thirst controlling for maybe two, three decades. And, but which population was involved? That was completely unknown, right? So uh, I was interested in that question, not just the nucleus or region, but which specific population was involved. And at that point, um, you know, the, the Alan Bling Institute, all in-situ hybridization data was available. Uh, optogenetics was available. Uh, so this was, th that was really a good time to test, you know, which, you know, uh, genes were expressed in those. Uh, then uh, with functional manipulation technique, right? So at that point, uh, we, I, I searched all genes as expressed in this SFO, subphonical organ, and uh, uh, which genetic lines, mouse lines are available. And uh, I took those lines and test all of them with uh, optogenetic technique. And I still remember that the first, exact first animal I stimulated, then that animal ran to the spout and started drinking. And I was for sure that it's or most for sure that it's thirst. So that was first I, I you know, got that thirst neuron. And for sodium uh, appetite neurons, that was done by my graduate student. Um, so he, he tried to do the same approach, but he had really a hard time finding that nucleus first because uh, so the sodium appetite neuron is, you know, in a very tiny nucleus called pre-locus celluleus. And it's probably not even in a, a textbook. It's a very tiny, I would say, 100 by 100 micron, like tiny micro stuff. It's like a very dense, if you look at it, once that you identify, but it's hard to identify. So he couldn't identify any of those until like we, he searched the entire brain. Um, then finally he found something different and then it turned out to be that pre-LC region. Uh, then from there, he could identify the cell, uh, like, you know, gene that's expressed, and uh, it turned out we, we had the line. Uh, then he stimulated, and animal just ran to the, the, the rock salt. So like, I think it's a combination of, uh, I would say, persistence and uh, luck, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so often in science. Yeah. So, like, I want to start extrapolating a little bit um, and uh, and uh, seeing how this relates to humans, right? So, um, lab mice in general, uh, mm -hmm. the lab mice that we uh, use in um, lab mice that we have in animal facilities, they're very genetically similar to each other, usually, mm -hmm. right? We have really homogenous um, populations. And so, I was curious, what 
you know, different people have different appetites for things like salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, different people like more carbs. Different people like more fat. Um, uh, wh- what is the kind of variation that you see um, in uh, the activity of these neurons um, between specific animals? That is hard to answer. So the currently, um, uh, so let's see. So the probably the best approach would be in vivo recording from those neurons and uh, in normal state uh, and depleted state how much firing rate they have right so that's uh, in vivo uh, natural firing right and then how that varies between animals right that, that's the right way to do it and in fact that approach which actually has been used for many different regions, like you know, hippocampus, uh, cortex, you know, many different regions. That's a big brain region. But when it comes to those small, tiny nuclei, it is extremely hard to do that. And almost no, like very little study, I would say one to two studies in the past have done that kind of experiment. So the currently it's uh, the variation in the normal or baseline is unknown. And how that changes and how that varies between animals. That's uh, th- th- that's a difficult question to answer, but I think that's a definitely an in- interesting question. And maybe certain strain, um, which has hypertension already, uh, how that changes the baseline activity in the brain, that's, I think, the interesting question. Um, it's just like requires a lot of technical expertise, which takes time, right? So th- that is... That, that's sort of one factor that prevents us from doing that. Uh, but that's, that's just definitely an interesting question, yeah. So, and then, you know, outside of, like, optogenetics is fantastic. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we can't use it in humans, right? Um, I think there's there's a lot of obvious uh, applications of your research mm-hmm. to people. You know, I mean, we have a, a huge obesity crisis in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, people would love to have some kind of uh, pharmacological control over their, yeah. uh, over their appetite. Um, so I assume there would be a lot of uh, interest from pharmaceutical companies, for example, mm-hmm. uh, in this kind of research. Are, are there ways of targeting these specific neurons uh, pharmacologically without having, you know, massive broad side effects? Yeah, so I think the nuclei outside the brain barrier, uh, this uh, characteristic is very unique to the lamina terminalis. So it is possible, let's say, if you take this macrom uh, molecule that does not penetrate the blood-brain barrier, right? So, like, you know, j- just to uh, for, for your information, the blood-brain barrier is mostly uh, to prevent uh, or protect the entire brain from the external molecule in the bloodstream, right? And then that blood-brain barrier is lacking for some reason in the lamina terminalis specific nucleus, like subpointical organ ovule. So that this is, is essentially the only part of the brain that's directly exposed to the blood. Yeah, it doesn't exactly have right. any kind of barrier that would normally stop uh, various antigens, uh, yeah. various chemical, various drugs from getting into the brain. Yeah, right. So those are called like leaky nucleus in the brain, right? So because of that, if you like, you know, uh, develop some molecule that does not penetrate the brain barrier, blood brain barrier, but it's safe in the bloodstream, so that those molecules might be able to target the the thirst controlling neurons or suppress. I mean, there's no reason to activate them. You don't want to just be thirsty, but like for like some obvious, um, you know, application will be just like you know, I would say the athletes 
in extreme condition. They don't want to feel SARS and they don't want to just get distracted by that, right? So it, like in case, um, in those cases, if you like ingest those, I mean, uh, you don't distract those, you know, athletes, but uh, like if you suppress SARS, then you can, might be able to like help concentrate on the, uh, the performance, right? I mean, I'm just making it up. And the opposite side would be maybe um, age-related uh, dehydration, right? So the uh, the elderly tend to uh, feel less thirst. That's already known. So, like you know, the old people tend to get dehydrated very easily in summer or hot days. That's because they do not uh, feel thirst as much as uh, young individuals. I have a grandmother in Florida. So I have this <laughs> that, argument with her every yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, you know humid enough here, but you know in dry climate maybe. Um, but in that case, it's not because they cannot bring like water bottle up or anything. It's just not like a muscle issue or like motor issue. It's just like a brain issue, right? So we don't know what the mechanism is, but it is possible that maybe sensory region in the brain, just like, you know, old people have less uh, visual ability or, you know, smell, right? It's like a sensory system in the brain might deteriorate uh, as age. Uh, then uh, maybe the function might just go down. Um, so if we can now help maybe prevent that deterioration or potentially you know, uh, sensitize those neurons, then that might uh, help you know, th those symptoms from dehydration. So in your studies for the thirsty animals, uh, water intake is both such, uh, like making the, the animal to feel satisfied, but also make them feel happy. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm wondering how did you study whether the thirst satiation directly serves as a reward signal? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, <clears throat> so the result we've shown is that we found uh, some neural population that encodes thirst quenching, right? So we drink water to quench our thirst. So the logical thinking would be if you now quench thirst neurons, then that should be positive valence or we should feel pressure, right, by suppressing those neurons. But our result is completely opposite. So if even if we silence thirst neurons by stimulating thirst quenching neurons in the brain, that does not uh, please animal, which is uh, measured by dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens, right? So that's contra, I mean, to, to us, it's a, it's a bit non-intuitive because uh, oh, like based on our experience, right? So we don't know the answer directly, but we think that maybe the engagement of their behavior, like conscious engagement that they go to spout and then keep drinking water, that behavior is pro probably important for uh, the dopamine release, which is an indicator of pressure, rather than just water intake per se. So uh, as an evidence, you know, even if we infuse water directly into the stomach, which now rehydrate animals, right? But that does not uh, in trigger any, um, you know, dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens. So their behavior is required for the pressure. So the, the intuition uh, here is that they have to actually have learned some kind of, the learned behavior that they have since it's so consistently associated <laughs> with them getting uh, satiated. Yeah. Um, it's almost like if Pavlov's dogs needed the bell, 
basically to feel satiated yeah, from from eating food. Yeah, that's pretty good point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So in animal, when they drink, right, they're almost guaranteed to get rehydrated in normal life, right? And they have done that for like thousand times in their life, right? So in dopamine system, it's you know partly what they encode is that um, uh, the reward prediction error, right? So if you get like unexpected positive thing, then there's a dopamine release that now, uh, you know, uh, sort of potentiate that behavior, right? So if you get some unexpected reward, reward, then the animal just keep doing that same behavior, right? And the opposite the same. So in this particular case, uh, it, when animal drink water, they already know that what's gonna come, right? The reward will come. So that's already, uh, the prediction signal, right? So that prediction signal has to be there. And the interesting, another interesting part of the dopamine signal is that um, if you give reward for the first time unexpectedly, right? So dopamine is released when you give uh, the reward, right? But if you give some signal beforehand and then give reward, then this dopamine signal shift from the point of reward to this uh, signal prior to the reward, right? And then the dopamine release is gradually decreased in the reward point, right? So then if you, if we think about that uh, in this context, maybe the when animal leak water, even before the rehydration, they might feel that leaking as a signal of reward, right? And that the word is naturally come afterward, right? So, uh, and in that case, um, the the rehydration, which is a real reward, uh, at that point, there's no um, dopamine release anymore. So if you repeat that uh, reward part by just gastric infusion of water, then there's no more uh, dopamine release at that point because it's already shifted to the, the signal, right? So that's something that uh, we think how it works. So it seems like evolutionarily, uh, you know, if you think about it evolutionarily, why would this be beneficial? Why mm-hmm. isn't it enough just to have a direct sensor of how much water is in your stomach or something like that, right? Um, the thought is that if you can predict how much water you need to be happy mm-hmm. and be happy from uh, drinking that much water yeah. before you even have it in your body, yeah. it might be more efficient. I mean, it could help an animal decide, for example, which, uh, you know, hole to drink from or something like that, depending on the volume of water in there. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Um, but but it's just, at the same time, it could be too late, right? So it, it might take uh, several minutes. So there's a, definitely a mechanism that intestine can sense osmolarity change, but it takes several minutes uh, from the point of drinking to get getting to getting the water to the stomach, right? I mean the intestine. So uh, if that's the only mechanism, then animal has to keep drinking water for like say five, five minutes, and that's already too much water intake for animals, right? So to prevent that, maybe animal has another mechanism to check in the, um, when they drink water. And then second checkpoint is in the intestine, right? To sort of a double check system uh, to prevent uh, sort of over drinking behavior. And at the same time, you drink in you know, appropriate amount, right? Enough amount. Do you think, uh, Basically, talking about this mechanism, um, 
for us humans, we can drink an absurd amount of water. Yeah. Um, and I think at some point we just feel this satiation just also based on our stomach stretching. Uh -huh. Do you think this could be happening in animals as well, where they just have some sort of internal stretch mechanism that just signals back to the brain, okay, there's enough water in there now? I think um, the stretch signal is definitely one of the uh, you know inhibitory signal to the brain that stops eating and drinking. And I think recent paper uh, show that uh, the uh, the stomach distension signal through the nodules uh, has an inhibitory effect on, for example, in this case, feeding. Uh, but uh, I think uh, drinking behaviors are also inhibited by those uh, signals. And uh, so I think that's a natural, like, uh, the system, like probably another system to uh, prevent over drinking. Uh, you know, in case you're drinking like too much uh, water within the very short period of time, which now right, uh, creates this distension in the stomach, I think that's gonna be uh, definitely another mechanism. And so how about um, mechanisms that make up for this? So you can imagine that the first mechanisms of uh, uh, so would be called satiety, satiation. What's the word I'm looking for here? Um, so th there are, I would say the short-term mechanism as opposed to long-term mechanism, yeah, so, right? Yeah, but so the, the long-term mechanism of it, right? If you drink in the short term, mm -hmm. uh, you feel full. Uh, but it turns out that what you drink doesn't actually have any water in it, something mm -hmm. like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it not doesn't have any water in it, it's not actually um, hydrating. So let's say you drank a strong beer, yeah. right? And uh, it felt really good, but then your body's realizing, hey, I'm still really thirsty. Uh -huh. uh, so is it a completely different uh, set of neuronal circuits that catches up to this? Catches up. So uh, that sort of corrects uh, for the initial signal of um, being kind of full. I think it's very linked uh, or related um, neural circuits. So I, I would say there are two mechanisms for this short-term satiation, right? One is coming from the oropharyngeal region and uh, gulping action, right? So if you drink uh, liquid, and then just going, passing through this oropharyngeal region, then you get uh, sh like transient inhibition in thirst neurons. And then the s second mechanism is um, in the intestine osmolarity change. And uh, if the intestine senses a low osmolarity, which is created by water intake, then that's gonna go to the brain. Uh, and then also persistently uh, inhibit thirst neurons, right? So what happens when you um, drink non-water, like non-rehydrating liquid, right? Let's say mineral oil, but it's still liquid, right? So there's a first uh, inhibitory mechanisms kick in, um, which is oropharyngeal, right? Because it's a liquid, and then that transiently inhibit insert neurons. But if the gut does not sense low osmolarity, Right, so this inhibition in the oropharyngeal region is gone after water intake, right? So if you stop drinking, then that inhibition is now turned off, right? So then if SARS neurons, which is an excitatory neuron, keeps firing, and that firing is re reduced by the intestinal low osmolarity sensing. And if that second signal does not come in, kick in, uh, within like several minutes or so, then the inhibitory first inhibition is gone, and then excitatory uh, firing is still there. So the response kick back to normal level, like normal means like dehydrated level, right? So 
those two signals work in in series one like first uh, in the gastric uh, like oropharyngeal region and the second is the intestinal region so uh, if again right the, the drinking water is lo- not lost already then second inhibition does not kick in and the response comes back out so if we're talking about this initial signal of uh, the signal that can create reinforcement learning, right? Mm-hmm. Something like licking water yeah. uh, is is what makes them happy. It's yeah. not enough to just fill their stomach. Do you think you could extinguish that by feeding them something that looks exactly like water but doesn't actually make them full? Um, because you would have this extinguishing, potentially extinguishing effect that would kick in later, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of minutes or so afterwards or seconds, whatever, um, when their body tells them that they're not actually full. And so the signal initially that was reinforced that told them that, you know, I am happy from licking this liquid substance mm-hmm. um, would sort of fade away because it's no longer an honest signal of what yeah. they're taking in. I think on a long-term basis, uh, it will be extinguished. So initially animals are tricked and then drink, for example, lake, uh, mineral oil, right? So then animals are happy, but they realize later on that there's nothing good coming in. Right, so at that point, uh, I think the brain adjusts their like dopamine release and then um, the learning behavior, and uh, after a couple of probably you know several rounds of training, you know animal realizes that it's not going to touch that, and that's for sure it's going to happen. Yeah. So you could trick a person with salad a couple of times, oh, yeah. but it's yeah. not going to work no, forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's- you mentioned in your talk and in your research that there's. We have salt appetite controlling neurons. We have uh, thirst controlling neurons. And there's also two different kinds of thirst. So osmolarity, uh, basically induced thirst. And Mm -hmm. the other one was... Hypovolemic. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, You briefly mentioned that there could be two types of hunger. So I want to briefly touch on that. So um, do you think that there could be a similar or conserved mechanism that controls hunger? And then what kind of different types of hungers do you think... Uh, could be controlled or could be uh, out there. Okay. Um, well, that's uh, that's not exactly our study, uh, but I think so. That, that's in uh, in relation to the the single cell RNA sequencing or transcriptomic analysis related to thirst circuit and hunger circuit, right? So uh, that too is just a speculation. It's like a different types of eating behavior of fe- hunger. Um, so the one that's well known, uh, I mean, it's still anecdotal, is uh, protein hunger. So let's say if you're uh, eating too much sugar or uh, lipid that's lacking protein, right? So the animal develop uh, sort of a preferred, or I would say, specific hunger towards protein or amino acids, right? Behaviorally, right? So it, it is one form of sort of a specific uh, channel of hunger. And if that's controlled by like selective neurons in their uh, hunger nucleus, like arcuate nucleus or HRP neurons, that's what you know controls hunger, right? Feeding behavior that we don't know. But in a separate study done by you know Harvard group is uh, they did transatomic analysis from those um, uh, arcuate nucleus, and then they at least found uh, distinct types of HRP neurons uh, in terms of uh, trans- transatomic uh, expression level, right? Uh, so it is then possible to me that maybe those two populations might mediate 
different types of maybe nutrient related hunger, like specific hunger, just like in protein hunger or like sugar hunger, which we don't know exactly. Uh, so that, and if that is the case, it's kind of similar to uh, the thirst system. That's what I thought. That I guess would explain some cravings that we have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as Ingum just mentioned, I think, uh, can you tell us a little more about these two types of thirsty? Two types of thirsty uh, is, so like historically, the thirst is known to have two different types. Uh, one is osmolality-based thirst, uh, and then the second one is a hypovolemic uh, thirst. So the osmolality thirst, uh, os- osmotic thirst is uh, uh, when you, eat too much uh, excessive sodium or ions that increases the, uh, the circulation osmolarity, then that acts on the brain and that creates the feeling of thirst, right? And another thing is uh, when you lose the body fluid, like blood, right? When you uh, get injured and uh, lose blood, then you feel thirsty again. And these are very different types of you know, thirst because um, the osmotic thirst has nothing to do with volume, and then now hypovolemic thirst has nothing to do with osmotic, right? So these two different types of stimuli are uh, present in the brain, and then that equally drives thirst, right? But their behavior is a little different. Uh, osmotic thirst case, uh, animals purely uh, look for pure water, but not like ions or solute. Uh, and in hypovolemic thirst case, you know, animal accept water as well as salts, right? So how that, uh, uh, you know, represented in the brain and how the brain interpret those uh, signals are still unknown, right? Mm-hmm. So we are trying to tackle that question by uh, using transatomic analysis and then, uh, you know, potentially maybe different or unique type of neurons might be involved in those signals, and then that's our kind of hypothesis. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Okay. Um, Dr. Oka, thank you so much for sitting with us. Okay. Thank you so thank much you. for It's really great inviting. Thank you. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud, follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast.